Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Good morning, everyone. We might ask the born to be brave people if we can keep the tire that smashes things. That way, if anybody's going to sleep in the service, we just, ah, just drop it and crush something. My name is Brandon Dietz. I'm the director of worship here at Gateway Community Church. And you may not know this, but I got a trophy one time when I was 10 years old, so I'm a pretty big deal. I'm just saying. I actually thought about bringing the trophy in, and then I was like, somebody, I thought somebody knew was going to come and be like, dear Lord, I'm in the wrong place. But this, this trophy has a story. It relates to what I'm going to talk to you about today. I got this trophy. It's a third place trophy. And uh, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, before I was in gateway arts, I was in martial arts. And uh, so I was at this sparring tournament. And, uh, you know, everything started kind of in a typical way. You know, you approach the mat and you bow and you touch the gloves and the whole thing. And it was anybody's game. And the first round didn't really stand out to me. I don't really remember much about it. The second round, I will never forget because I got kicked right, in, well, the term is below the belt. And I did what any real man does in that moment. I went down into the fetal position. And internally, I was a swirling tornado of pain and humiliation and in some ways, hopelessness. You know, like everything in my head was saying, you're already curled up in a ball, just keep rolling yourself off the mat, out the front door, begin your new life, pick an alias. You, maybe Abe Froman, if anybody's a Ferris Bueller's Day Off fan. And before that could happen, an official came up to me, and he said, uh, you know, do you want to stop fighting, or do you want to keep going? And I remember kind of looking at him and looking, and I saw my dad, and even though, again, any, everything inside me said this is a worthless endeavor, you know, it's hopeless. As far as I knew, nobody won sparring matches from the fetal position, you know. They weren't handing out points for transparency. And uh, so I, my, my, my brain was saying all this. My mouth said, I want to keep fighting. I want to keep going. And so I got up, and by the end of it, I got a trophy. And actually, by the end of the day, I got a couple of trophies. And that did something. That experience did something in me. It did something to my character. It was very formational, so that for the rest of my life, when I looked at that trophy, I didn't think about the moment that I received a trophy. I didn't think about, you know, the idea that a trophy is something that we should brag about. It was, to me, it was like every time I saw it, I thought about the moment that I got up. So why am I sharing this with you? Because I'm going to close out our series called Hope Rising, and I want to talk to you about being the hope, an experience or a journey that to me looks a lot like the story that I just shared with you. I want to talk to you specifically about the way in which hope can be found in being the hope. And so we have this misconception that sometimes we have to have it all together, that we need to be inspired to go out and be the hope or to partner with what God is doing in the community to be an agent of change. And uh, what I wanna say is that's not, that's not the case. Uh, let me start at the beginning. I've got a picture of my son Elliot here, three years old. Correction, this is Catboy from the nighttime crime-fighting trio, the PJ Mask. Uh, Elliot got this costume a couple of weeks ago at his third birthday. And he was like any three-year-old. He was so excited to put it on. And I was like any parent of a three-year-old. I was excited, and I grabbed my camera. And I just became enthralled in his experience of running around the backyard and just completely taking on this identity. One of Catboy's powers is super cat speed. And so they can run really fast. He was like, super cat speed! And he'd run around the deck. And as I watched him, I remembered what it was like to be little 
and to completely wear and, and, and feel the identity of the hero. Anytime that I watched a cartoon or, you know, from different generations, maybe it was a Western or a comic book or whatever it is, uh, as kids, as young people, we didn't think twice about being the hero. We didn't think twice about identifying as the hero. And maybe that carried with us throughout even high school or college for any of y'all who became kind of activists in college. It was like, we're going to stand up against the man and the system. We can make a difference. But what happens? Before long, you know, we get maybe kicked below the belt. We, we, life's kind of hard on us. We start to wear out. And we start saying and thinking cynical things like, you know, well, I grew up. I learned how the real world works. And what I want to say to that is, no, you learned how a broken world works. The difference in this is that saying this is just how the real world is, is kind of a, a resignation, right? This is just the way things are. We're not going to fix it. Versus this is how a broken world is. Leaves room for kind of this open-ended restoration, for repair to happen. But the trick is in seeing that possibility and seeing yourself as being a part of that. And that's, that's what we're called to be, right? As believers, as Christians, we have a hope. We've been given new life. But sometimes we forget that. We've become overwhelmed by the prevailing message of evil and hopelessness. I want to talk about that a little bit from uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 5. The, uh, you know, God, this is a story of God kind of creating everything. He's created the, the heavens and the earth, and um, he's created Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. Before long, we meet this character, the serpent, who we say is the Satan. And it says here, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden, or not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but he, God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So do you see what the serpent does here? He comes in and what does he do? He twists up God's word. Did he really say this? You couldn't eat from any tree? You know, he twists it up. He kind of casts a little bit of doubt about God's character. Surely you're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to eat it because then he knows you'll be like him. So then he, he plays to our ego. Does that sound familiar? So when I was reflecting on this, um, what I'm about to say may sound really, really obvious, but I love just exploring some of the connections. I began to ask myself when I thought about hope and hopelessness and going back to the beginning and this knowledge of good and evil, I thought, what was the serpent's agenda here? What did he stand to gain in all of this? Did he just want to like spike the punch and mix things up a little bit, you know? And it occurred to me that, well, so this knowledge of good this kind of a moot point. The serpent didn't really care about the knowledge of good. Things were already good, right? They, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They're, they've got a direct line to God. You know, they don't have kids. They spend a whole day naked. You know, like it's... Versus then what happens? They eat the fruit, right? Then there's labor pains, and then the kids come, and they fight all the time. Cain and Abel, anybody? Okay. So this is, this is clearly what the serpent was after, this knowledge of evil. That was his foot in the door. And I think about this moment where the serpent comes up to Eve, and I think of it as like a whisper, because it just starts with twisting a little bit, and it's a whisper in her ear that becomes this curse that resonates and reverberates throughout all of humanity. 
it's, it becomes like a cancer. I was talking to a friend of mine several years ago. She was getting her PhD in oncology. Um, it's like the study of cancer, cancerology, I guess is what it means. And I just said, what is cancer? You know, I've heard, it. I kind of know kind of what it is, but what is it like in simple terms? And she said, it's essentially a cell that kind of forgets its programming. So it just goes AWOL, kind of fritzes and starts to multiply. They call that metastasizing. And before long, it just takes over the resources in the body. So you've got a liver cell that is no longer acting like a liver cell. It just kind of does its own thing. And it zaps resources and then it spreads. And I thought, that's interesting. When I was thinking about this connection, because cancer is not something that is essentially created out of nothing, if that makes sense. Some of you may come to me after the service and be like, oh, you're wrong. This is the way I understand it. What it's doing is it's actually acting on the cells that are already in your body. So similar to the way that Satan works in this, this kind of this drama between God and Satan, God has spoken a word. He is creating, right? With his word, he creates. Satan cannot create with his word. He can only mutate. Does that make sense? So he's mutated, he's warped, and he's done this thing in our lives that now to this day, we feel that, right? We have this knowledge of evil, One of the things that I love about the video that was shown while we sang the song, So Will I, is that all this beautiful imagery of God's creation. And then there's that like stunning piece, you know, where all my failures disappear and you've got this like these scenes of war and strife and hardship and heartache and people fighting and things happen. And then it goes right back into these beautiful images of smiles and God's creation again. And we live in a world that is so paradoxically ugly and beautiful at the same time. Think about, you know, and we become kind of overwhelmed by some of that evil. And think about the way that our knowledge of evil has only grown. You know, as technology gets bigger, we can get exposure to things. I mean, you don't even have to really go looking for it. You know, you have an iPhone and you're bebopping through your day and you get a notification that says this awful thing has happened. And then later on you get another notification, this awful thing has happened because only bad news sells, right? You rarely get a notification that says, hey, I hope you're having a great day just so you know you know, this wonderful thing happened. And I know in my experience, those were things that just barraged me, right? They wore me down. Those are the things that started to make me believe that things were hopeless. But as I was thinking about that and the way that that works, the way that that plays towards hopelessness, it occurred to me that maybe a fundamental component of hopelessness is not that we know evil, it's that we don't know enough good. Does that make sense? Does that ring true in your life? Because good is still a contender, right? Because the knowledge of good and evil was what was at stake there. And so what about this good? The good is the thing that we have to fight for. The good is the thing that's not delivered to us on a silver platter. The good is the thing that sometimes we have to bring into a bad situation. We have to take that initiative. Sometimes I think We need to be able to get over a certain sense of paralysis so to make that happen. That if we're going to pursue the good, if we're going to fight hopelessness with the good news that God is is, is bringing, that he has brought in this world, we have to get over that feeling of I can't move because this feels utterly hopeless. And so I want to go to uh, John chapter 5. There's a story about a man uh, who's been paralyzed and, and the beginning of the story opens up, and Jesus is basically coming to this pool area, right? It's got this kind of a, it's called Bethesda. It's got these five kind of baths in it. And the belief was that uh, there was all these, these blind and paralytic and people just kind of 
really sick people laying around there. And the belief was that the waters would stir, and that when the waters would stir, it was an angel that was doing it, and so the first one in would be healed. And so Jesus, and I'm going to start on, um, I think it's around four or five, but it says, one who had been an invalid, let's say one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, and he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So a short summary of what's just happened here is that Jesus asked this guy a yes or no question. The paralytic answers with a complaint, and Jesus responds with a challenge. In that complaint, you know, I was thinking about that. Gosh, this is, like, the answer seems so obvious. I know he's been paralyzed for 38 years, and, you know, but he's unable to articulate. Yes, the simple word yes. He responds with this complaint by saying, well, there's no one here, and he starts to talk about how the world and everyone else seems to be against him. But what's happening is the living water is standing in front of him, and all he can think about is the bath water, right? If you look at his answer, it seems to me like when Jesus says, do you want to be well, his answer is, but I can't get to the water. And Jesus is, in a way, he's saying, like, that doesn't matter, because I can offer you healing. And so he responds to that complaint with a challenge. Initially, I kind of found myself being a little bit hard on this guy, But then something happened that I think should happen for all of us. I recognized myself in the story. And so I want to ask you the question. Have you ever been so lost in your problems and your feeling of hopelessness that you lose track of what it is that you want or need in this world? That you can't even entertain anything good happening to you because as soon as it shows up in your head, the life is sucked out of it. You get caught up in hopelessness. You lose track of what it is that you actually want to do. It becomes this, this kind of cycle. And so Jesus, as trite as this sounds, I think the answer for me and the answer for you is to get up and walk. Now, I want to make another point here. This guy who was so scattered in the beginning, not knowing exactly what it is he wants or maybe forgetting As soon as Jesus says this, he's up and he starts walking, despite the fact that it was the Sabbath. I put some scripture in your notes. It'll be probably towards the bottom, but Exodus 31 and Numbers 15, I won't put them up here, but um, they kind of just relate to this reality back then that if you broke the Sabbath law, if you were carrying on the Sabbath, you could be killed for that. That's no way to go out, right? Like you're paralyzed for 38 years, you get your legs, and the first thing you do is commit a crime that gets you the death penalty. This guy should have been concerned about it. Um, but did Jesus, did Jesus ask him to break a law? And if so, how does that resonate with what Jesus says when he says, I didn't come to abolish law, but I came to fulfill it? And here's kind of a cool thing that I see in that. The Sabbath is about what? We think it's about rest, right? The Sabbath calls us to rest. That's why they were saying, don't carry your mat on the Sabbath. God said to rest on the Sabbath, and so 
The religious leaders are saying, okay, we got to rest. But the Sabbath is not just about rest for rest's sake. The Sabbath is about restoration. You see? The reason that God calls us to rest is because it restores us. We get to rest in his goodness that restores our faith in him. We get to rest our body. That restores our body as we heal. As we rest the land, as we give the land a Sabbath, which we don't really do these days, the soil begins to heal. Earthworms do their thing. The soil becomes rich again with nutrients. The Sabbath was about restoration. So what did Jesus do on the Sabbath? He restored him, right? But the religious leaders, they completely lose that. They're caught up in the rules, and they say this is rest for rest's sake. So they approach this guy. I, I want to believe that this guy's been there for 38 years. They knew who he was. So when they saw him walking, they were like, oh, my God, it's Frank. He's walking. I can't believe he's carrying his mat. So like, they totally missed the point. I made a cartoon for you uh, to just kind of illustrate the ridiculousness. And I was worried that you'd be getting sleepy in my sermon. So, And while it is ridiculous, these religious leaders, they missed the point. The reality is, it was dangerous, but this guy does it without hesitation. And I love his response. The man who healed me called me to pick up my mat and walk. So once again, you and I, especially as believers, we can place ourselves here. Because by his stripes, we were healed. We should never forget that as believers, that we have received a spiritual healing. And that Jesus has stepped into our hopelessness he stepped into this world of brokenness and sin. He stepped into our struggles and our weakness. And he says, get up, walk in freedom, walk in grace, walk in dignity, walk in the life that I have given you and do it without any concern for rules. Because I know that I'm guilty of getting so caught up in the rules of life that I don't become empowered by the rule of God's kingdom in my life. That's the kind of get up and walk that we can do as we set out to be the hope in the world. That is how we carry that hope into the world. So we rise up and we walk and we know that hope lies ahead. I told you about, about getting up you know, and fighting in my tournament in the beginning. I was talking with my dad about this story and uh, he said, you know, as a dad, I knew that you were, you were gonna be okay. That was the moment that I knew you were gonna be all right and I'm just gonna kinda rephrase what he said because he was more specific than I'd want to be on church stage. Uh, but he said, because you could take a swift kick in and keep on ticking. And I've had to do that a few times in life. And I've found that, that each time in those moments where despite everything in me saying, don't, it's not worth it, when you get up, the next time that you're confronted with something, you look back and say, okay, well, I made it through that. Maybe I can get through this. It's a way that hope is found in getting up that then informs us in the current moment so that we can grab a hold of the hope that lies ahead in our future. I want to read a verse out of Romans, and I'm going to give you a disclaimer. This verse I've heard a lot, and I just get a little bit uncomfortable with it because I think it is, is often used in a way that's kind of platitudinous. It's, um, it says something about suffering and rejoicing in suffering that people who are suffering with something like cancer, it, it can kind of make you feel a little guilty, right? That you should be celebrating and rejoicing for having this thing. 
And to me, that's not what it's saying. I want to read it, and then I'm going to talk about uh, what some of these words mean, uh, pulling from the Greek. Okay, so let's read Romans 5 here. I'm picking up kind of partway through the verse in 5. It says, And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so I wrote down in your notes just some kind of other words to think about that work to kind of help fill out the definition for some of these words. When you see boast or glory, the sentiment there is hold your head up high. Whatever it is that we're going through, there's a sense that, that especially when you think about in biblical times, there was a lot more of this, but if you were suffering, people believe that, that you did something wrong, like that God was against you, that he hated you. But we get this, this boasting, this glory, that's not the same as like, be happy. It's hold your head up high. You have a reason to be to, to hang on to your pride, to, to, to God's pride in you in that way, if that makes sense. The suffering. This is like a, um, they call, you know, tribulation is used sometimes, but it's this hemmed in, kind of confined feeling. And that may be pretty intuitive to you. But just think about some of the, the moments in your life where you felt between a rock and a hard place, and it's felt like suffering, whether that was a, a physical ailment or just a spiritual one or like we've been talking about. You know, you're looking at this world saying, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And you feel the sense of suffering in that moment. Endurance or perseverance. The word is hupomonin. And this is a, a Greek word that kind of broken apart means to remain under. So this endurance, perseverance, I think of like what it means to hunker down in a storm a little bit. You know, as a storm passes over and we just remain under that pressure for a little bit. We don't have to hightail it and run. You know, we don't have to be ignorant of what's going on, but we stand firm. As believers, we can stand firm in God and his goodness and his promise in our life. And this yields character, a word that also means kind of experience, proof, tried. So once again, you're going through something, you remain under it, you're just holding on to God in this moment. And what happens as that begins to pass, or maybe even in it, is that you kind of gain experience, that you become tried, that you become proven in some sense, right? That's what character means in this context. And then finally, hope. The Greek word is elpis. When I was in school, the way that I remembered that was um, that it sounded like Elvis, and a lot of people hoped that Elvis was still alive. Or like Elpis, like help is on the way, you know. Uh, help is on the way. Okay, so, uh, so hope is kind of a funny word because I think the, the way that we use it is, a, um, is kind of like a, a, a wish or maybe a preference. So think about the statement, I hope I win. What we mean in that is I wish to win or I have a preference of winning over losing, right? But the word hope here. And the, and the kind of more expanded Greek sort of definition is to anticipate something that is sure to come, an expectation. This is more than like a wish. This is more than a desire. This is more than a preference, right? Hope is setting your sights on something. 
and going for that. That's what hope is. Think about how that sentence changes when you say, I anticipate that I'll win. We say, I hope I win, if we're saying, I anticipate that I win. That sounds to me more like something someone would say if they've already spent the time training, right? If they've had to persevere, if their character, they've been proven in some sense, they have set their sights on something and they have in some sense has been readied for it because of those trials. And so going through those trials produces that hope, as, as Paul is telling us here in Romans, that we have that anticipation because we've been through it. And it becomes this circular thing. I wrote in your notes, it says, hope makes it possible to endure, and at the same time, the process of enduring and the godly character it produces increases our hope by making us continually reflect on the future realities guaranteed by God. This was a quote, and after I put it in there, I realized it sounded a little bit like a word jumble, and so, at least to me, and so I thought I would just rephrase it in a shorter way. Hopefully it's a little clearer, but it says, each moment prepares for the next by leading us to reflect on what God has done as a way of remembering what God will do. That is the call of the biblical community, whether that's the Israelites, you and I today, they continually were setting up what they would call Ebenezer's, these stones, these monuments. We sing, we are the monuments of your faithfulness. We set those up because we can look back at something God's done, and that helps us to look forward at what God will do, to have that hope, to set our sights up high, and to remain in him. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. So I told you about my story there. Um, so one of the things that I've been talking about with, with finding hope and being the hope is I've given you some examples that kind of relate to maybe your personal experience where you are. But I also wanted to share about a hope that can be found when we do this in community. And that is that sometimes we, against again what we feel, will step out, set out to be the hope. We want to go minister to somebody, and we find out that we've been ministered to. I talked with Jesse, and he's gotten my permission. We still good? Um, this guy, I love this guy, he came over and, and started serving in the arts several years ago, and um, I guess four years ago about, almost, and um, what I didn't know about him, I learned in a season fairly recently when I was meeting with a group of guys, and we were going through a book study, and um, I was just kind of feeling a little bit hopeless, you know? I was starting to ask questions like, man, does church really make a difference? You know, has the community really changed? Am I really even doing anything? What am I, you know, hopefully one of the things that you've been able to hear in this Hope Rising series is, as Randy and Susan and, and Carson and myself have shared is that it's not, all, it's not all rainbows and unicorns for us. You know, we have a real faith that sometimes we have to wrestle with. And so this is one of those seasons for me where I was starting to be pulled into hopelessness. And Jesse shares, and he says, you know, I, I struggled with being an alcoholic for most of my adult life. And, and I kind of knew that he had struggled with that in the past, but he said, but I, I came here, and I wanted to get involved. I wanted to run sound, and I knew that I couldn't do both. And I mean, like that. He stopped, right? That's not everybody's story. I realize that's a huge miracle. And, and he's going to be four years sober this March. Uh, yeah. And so we celebrate that. There is a way in which, for Jesse... Hope was found in going out and being the hope, being a part of the solution and serving, right? But for me, when I was kind of serving 
and I was feeling a little bit of a slump, I was exposed to a story that just captivated my attention. When I was thinking, are we making a difference? It was like God spoke through him and said, yeah, you are. Because here's one life that has been changed in a radical way. Here's a man who is completely different, who is, is increasingly pursuing the Lord, who I hear him uh, reflect and, and, and look back on things and what God's doing. And it's amazing to watch him grow. I was ministered to. Hope was shown to me in that moment. And that's available to us in the community. And it's a great example right here in the church. But I think there's other ways too. Um, you know, some people will come up to me and they'll ask me questions. And not because I have it figured out. Um, I'm surprised people want to sit down and, and, and talk. And I'm like, I don't have all the answers. Like we, can, we can work through it together. But one of the things I'll say, if they say something like, I just want to go, and I want to know God, I want to feel closer to him, and yeah, we have, like, you know, quiet time is good, and going to church is good, and all that stuff, those are good for you, but one of the things I love to tell people is to go where God is. Maybe that's here, but maybe that's the mercy tree. Maybe that's Kenya. Maybe that's India. Maybe that's something that nobody has, has even really thought about going to yet. Go out and be a part of what God is mixing up in the community because I guarantee you, you'll see him. It's gonna be hard, but you'll see him. When you get down there and you start fighting on the ground floor, you're gonna see him move. And this kind of leads me to a little bit of a nugget for you, a practical thing that I wanna hand you. I was reading through a book called Living in Community by Christine Pohl, and she talked about the spiritual practice of promise-keeping which was kind of new to me. And, and, and just the short summary was that, you know, God is a covenant God. He's made a commitment to us, and we make a commitment back to him. Um, but we're a society that doesn't really engage in kind of following through all the time, right? We change plans. It's an increasing trend that we wait to confirm because we want to see if something better comes up, you know? Um, and so she talked about the spiritual practice of promise-keeping, and Gina approached me one time. She said, hey, Brandon, I think, you know, what would you think about coming to the mercy tree? I think the guys would like you. I think you'd like it. And I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to make a commitment to do that. And the thing about the spiritual practice of promise keeping is that on the front end, it actually makes you think about what you're jumping into so that you're not like, hey, guns are blazing. I'm going to go all in. And then you get burned out like a week later, right? You learn to pace yourself. And so I said, okay, I think one day a week I can go and I can sit down and have lunch and, and just kind of make that a thing. And that's another way in which I've seen hope rise up because I've gotten to know my neighbors. Literally, they're my neighbors. I live in Oak Brook, and I see these people around. You know, they're in the parks, or maybe they're in apartments nearby, or I'll see them on a bike riding by, and I'm like, that's them. I can say hi, you know. I know what's going on. We're doing life together. And, um, but because of that spiritual practice of promise-keeping, in all transparency, there's been days where I was like, I just don't really feel like going. Maybe I have a lot going on, or man, I'm just really tired. And once again, like, is this really making a difference? And, uh, but it's on those days where I go, again, thinking, no, it's a promise. I'm going to minister to people, and they minister to me, right? Because then suddenly they share something about what God's doing in their life. You see a turn. You see a light switch goes off. And suddenly, once again, I'm like, okay, well, there you go, Brandon. You're being ministered to. There's hope rising up. And so that's what today is about. That's what this life, this journey is about. And I wanted to encourage you to ask the question. When you think about how can I be the hope in the world? How can I awaken that hero within me? How can I return to that childlike 
possibility and opportunity, I would say the first question is to look around and ask yourself the question, where do I see the need for hope in my church, in my community, in the world? And then I want to tell you something that Betsy told to me several years ago, and I've used it a lot. And um, I was just cynically complaining, just being a, a critic, you know, about all the things that I didn't want to have anything to do with. And she said, you know, maybe if you see something wrong or if you see something missing, maybe it's you. That's what she said. If you see something missing, maybe it's you. And that was like a, whoa. That was like the challenge. That was like the get up and walk challenge, right? Because now all of a sudden I didn't have the freedom to just sit there and be like, oh, that stinks, you know. But I had to say, maybe if something's missing, maybe it's me. And so as you look about the community and the world and say, where is hope needed? Ask yourself that question. Tell yourself, maybe if I see something missing, maybe it's me. You'll be surprised at what you can do. Be the hope. Find the hope. I hope that you're inspired to do so. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the way that you call us to get up, to get off the mat. And wherever we are today, I pray that we can, that we can take a step of faith today, that hope rising up is not something that stops with this series. God, but there's people in this room who will experience hope rising up by stepping outside of these doors, by making a promise to be a difference, to be the hope in the world, because you have given us that freedom to do it. And we can take that good news to someone else. We can love on others. We can be the light and the life that you have called us to be in this world. And it is not too dark and it is not too scary for us to face with you with us. It's in your name, amen. We have, a, we have communion happening in the Life Center here after this service. We encourage you to get your kids and then make your way over there. And uh, I'll be out here if you want to meet me outside. If you've heard something and you think, I want to know about this healing that we've talked about, we'll have people up front to pray, and I invite you to come and be a part of that. Welcome to your journey. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.